Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We set a pretty high threshold. We were like 50% is not going to cut it. We actually want, I think we said like two-thirds need to, yeah, two-thirds vote in order to pass. So it was really exciting to see these. And we, I think there was just a lot of a a good amount of like, let's get moving. We want to start organizing energy. And so people were, were, I think, excited to vote yes. I mean, at these rates, you could have eradicated the filibuster. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Evans. What's up, everybody? We are also joined today by Aru Shiny Ajay and Deja Powell from Sunrise Movement, which is a youth movement on a mission to stop climate change and create millions of good jobs in the process. Sounds amazing. Aru is the deputy campaign director for Sunrise Movement, and Deja is the organization's movement democracy organizer. Aru and Deja, welcome to the show. Thank yeah, you. hello. Thanks for having us. On today's episode, we're going to talk about org design inside social movements, which is a new one for us, and I'm very excited. But before we get into that, we'll get inside ourselves with a check-in. <laughs> we'll get inside this episode with our check-in <laughs> round. Uh, so, so esteemed guests, we start every episode of this show with a check-in round, which is a question that each of us answer. And, and so for today's check-in round, we will answer the following question, which is, what is a favorite family tradition that you have? And we'll go Aaron, then me, then Aru, then Deja. Mm. I, it's interesting. There, there certainly were some family traditions when I was a kid, but I think my wife, Britt, and I have decided to be more aggressive with tradition making with our kid. And one of them that we love is apple picking in the fall. Mm. So we're actually coming up into that territory soon. And we would like find the best orchard and go out and get way too many apples. And then there would be pies, there would be apple cider donuts, et cetera, et cetera. So that is, that's the one I'm going with. Don't say that summer is only half over. Oh, I'm not so sure. I feel, I feel. I know it's true. It's true. But I can just, I can sense it's coming. I know, I know. It's like, yeah, it's, it's a challenge. It's a real, it's a real hot button issue for us. Um, so my family is from the Midwest and like a lot of families in the Midwest, we celebrated Christmas. Like our big dinner was on Christmas Eve when I was growing up. Then we moved to the East coast and we tried to go to a restaurant on Christmas day. Cause that's what we had uh, always done in the Midwest. And they were all closed except for a Chinese <laughs> restaurant. And so then like the other side of my family, which is Jewish, we became the people who went to a movie and Chinese food on Christmas Day, only because we could not change our tradition of having like our Christmas dinner on Christmas Eve and presents nice. on Christmas Eve. 
Wow. It's a big, it's a big thing for us. That's rogue. I know. It was, it was wild. <laughs> yeah, we were really, really rebels in Darien, Connecticut. <laughs> um, Aru, what about you? Oh, this is a hard one. I was trying to think about all, yeah, all the different stuff my family does. Um, we we were never very rigid about traditions, but one thing that we, my parents did make sure to do, especially when I was younger, was try and take me and my brother every year or two years to India. And we'd like miss, I'd always miss like May and June of school wow. to be able to go. And awesome. I, it was like right during monsoon season. So just have a lot of fun memories of being able to do that. Nice. Asia? Yeah, I can close us. Um, me and my cousins actually have this like ritual tradition called last tag. And it's basically where whenever <laughs> we see each other, <laughs> whenever we see each other, we have to like figure out who's going to be the person to give the last tag. So there's often like hands running through closing windows or closing doors <laughs> trying to like be the person to give the last tag. So that's a I tradition. Believe there's a movie about it's this. So fun. Oh, really? That's so fun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. I have to check that out. <laughs> yeah, there's a movie called Tag about a group of friends that does that well into their 40s. Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah, That's, it's yeah cool. unfortunately, we stopped. We haven't done it as much anymore, but maybe I'd bring it back. <laughs> oh, yeah. They get very extreme. I think you should. I mean, th- these folks amazing. are like serious FBI <laughs> level about it. Awesome. So today's topic is org design for social impact, which is something that we haven't really explored on this show, but have always been very curious about and had people ask us questions about that now we're going to ask you instead. So uh, the first one of those is, for listeners who are not familiar with Sunrise Movement, what's like y'all's origin story and the purpose of the group? Great. I can start out with this one. And Deja, feel free to jump on if you if you want. Sunrise started around five years ago or so, and it came out of 2015 and 2016, which was kind of this this time in the climate movement where there had been this wave of momentum around divestment, around the Keystone XL pipeline, around the People's Climate March that was beginning to die down a little. And there was this question of, of what comes what comes next. So at around that time, a group of 12 young people from different parts of the climate movement, from divestment, from the pipeline movement, from like everywhere, basically came together for this period of intense reflection and learning and debate to build the next wing of the climate movement, the next wing of the youth climate movement that was supposed to take on the fossil fuel industry and the democratic establishment to do what was needed to address the climate crisis at the speed and the scale that science and justice demand. And the process was called front loading the first time and the movement they front loaded ended up being Sunrise. And the key, the key goal of Sunrise at the time was really to end the narrative that or there were a couple of key goals, I would say. There was like one that was about ending the narrative that climate and jobs were opposed to each other and intention. That might not sound like normal right now, but four or five years ago, that was one of the biggest objections around climate action was that it would stop jobs from being created. So we were really clear that we wanted just to put forward a vision of stopping climate change that would also create millions of jobs in the process. And we always are very clear about talking about that. There was another goal that was about making the climate movement a really key player in electoral and national politics, both to be able to win big pieces of legislation and honestly coming out of the loss of the 2016 elections, it became incredibly clear that we needed to get organized to be able to win elections, to be able to protect everything that that we believed in. Uh, and of course, the, the core goal, the one that we talk about all the time, 
is that we were just building this mass movement of young people to be ready to take action everywhere across the country. So that's really what we set out to do. And in many ways, we've achieved a lot of those goals and are kind of looking at the, the, next, the next step now. Based on that story, I'm, I'm interested in why and how you both began working on climate action in general. So if, if each of you could tell a little bit of the backstory behind how you synced up with Sunrise and, and ended up where you are, that would be great. And maybe we'll start with you, Deja. Yes, for me. So I grew up outside of in Chicago and my dad was like a really big fisher. And so there on fishing trips with him, didn't really like fishing, but I loved the water, wanted to become a marine biologist and was like on this path to do that. PhD in marine science, environmental science, and then had this moment um, when I studied abroad in college where I did a climate change program where we went to three countries, Morocco, Vietnam, Bolivia, really studying the impacts of climate change through like energy water nexus. And it was like in that program where I got really politicized, sort of connecting our economic system, capitalism to the climate crisis and had this like aha moment for me where I was like, it's not me sitting in a lab that's going to like make the biggest contributions on mitigating the climate crisis. It was building power, being a part of a movement, like pushing for massive legislation that was going to do that. And so pivoted a lot of my life, came back home to Chicago and in January, 2019 found, found Sunrise in Chicago and yeah, was a volunteer then and have been organizing on the journey at Sunrise since. Yeah. I, I feel like I had a story that I never grew up really caring much about climate action. I thought about it as a problem that was a little far away or not really relevant to me. I did care a lot about refugee issues and immigration issues growing up. And I remember this turning point that sort of happened at the end of my high school and early college. So this was like 2016, 2017, around that time, which was also right at the end of the Syrian refugee crisis and at a period where I remember there was this really big flood that happened in Chennai around that time where some of my family lives. And there was basically this confluence of factors, the refugee crisis, the drought in Syria that sort of sparked it, the floods that made me realize how much this problem of climate change was not far away, was not going to be, was not going to be a problem 10 years from now or 20 years from now, but was actually already creating social crises of the kind that I cared really deeply about. And that really politicized me when I realized how deeply climate change affected people and was going to just send our world into very deep crisis. And when I got to college, I basically looked everywhere for any type of organizing that I could do. Uh, Sunrise wasn't around at the time, but I did find the divestment movement. And after I joined the divestment movement on my campus, which was basically calling on my university to stop investing in fossil fuels, from there, I found out about Sunrise and joined. I mean, Sunrise Movement's mission is really as big as it gets. I am curious when when either or both of you started working with the group, what was the strategic plan that had been laid out? And like, what were the key goals that really drew you there? Yeah, I well, I was lucky enough to join Sunrise right when it first started. I was at the very first training. It was at this basement in Philadelphia. I loved it. <laughs> but some of the goals that I, I remember being really clear about at the time At the end of the day, we were just really clear that we wanted to build a movement. And the Mm -hmm. first thing that we did, we were like, go everywhere you can and train people anywhere that you can, build a hub, 
the core activities that we would do, I just remember calling school after school and being like, can I just come into your classroom and make a presentation about sunrise and climate change to the people in your classroom? So that was that was the core objective. And at the same time, there were some very clear strategic goals that we had, one of which was to bring climate more clearly into elections. Something that we had identified was the the really clear corrupting influence of fossil fuel executives like the Koch brothers on our politics. Totally. The degree to which they'd like totally bought out officials at every level of government. There's, yeah, I won't, there's a huge tangent. We could go on here just talking about that. And we were like, we need politicians who will actually stand up to fight for the health and well-being of all people. And we need to be able to force politicians to do that, elect politicians who will do that. So that was one. Another that I mentioned earlier was to end the jobs versus climate narrative and instead put forward a vision of the future that included job jobs for all for all people who wanted them, as well as stopping climate change. We didn't at the time have the language of the Green New Deal, but we were like, we know that there is some vision that we need to articulate. We don't know what the phrase will be or the policy will be, uh, but we were very clear. There's a, a positive vision of the future that we want to bring to the climate movement and to be able to deeply and fiercely organize around. I'm interested, given the scope of that mission and, and how challenging that obviously is and, and will be, given all the different forces at play, how was Sunrise structured at the time that y'all joined and, and how is it structured now? What are some of the design principles around how the system is built and how it works that will support this effort and this goal? Yep, I can share a little bit more about this and maybe start at the hub level. So Sunrise launch started, had I think a couple hubs, mainly on the East Coast and hubs are sort of I don't know, other organizations have chapters, we call them hubs, they're groups of young people that, you know, want to take action and organize around climate in their communities. And so I was a part of How big is a hub? Yes, hubs can range from three people coming together in their community, in their school. There are bigger hubs across the country where there are, you know, a thousand people on a slack. wow, okay. 20 people who are on teams, training, engaging in electoral organizing. Um, Yeah. So we had hubs across the country. I was a part of the Chicago hub and yeah, doing things like training, phone banking, canvassing to elect Green Middle champions, and then have hubs across the country. There's also the central organization, which, yeah, I think we can talk a little bit more structure of that, but have different sort of departments and divisions working on training, working on communications and, you know, being sort of like a Green New Deal propaganda machine. Um, And then also have sort of ways for individuals to plug into the movement. You know, if you can't join a hub, you can come phone bank with us every week to help us sort of elect Green New Deal champions at the congressional level. And so that's a little bit bit about our structure. I don't know if there's anything else you want to add on that before we talk about the principles. Mm -hmm. I think one, I think you touched on a lot of it. One really important thing, especially in 2018 and 2019, was that we really wanted to set up a structure where anyone could jump in and start taking action and really give a on-ramp to as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what our hubs and our three-person, yeah, the the idea that any three people could start a hub was meant to do. Yeah, and even when you mentioned this like on-ramp, there's, so Sunrise has a DNA and the DNA is sort of the output of the front-loading process that Aru mentioned in the beginning. And like Mm. in our movement's DNA, we have our strategy, like what are we trying to accomplish? our story, like what are the narratives that we need to put out into the world to make it possible to do the organizing we want to do? How do we structure ourselves? What's our structure? And then what's our culture? And the hope is that, you know, people take this DNA and can really run with it autonomously 
within their local communities. And so that's, I think, one part of the, the DNA that yeah, enables people to, to join the movement. And then within that DNA, there, there are principles that we have. And there, I think there are 12 principles. We've changed them since we refrontloaded, but they're everything from getting very clear on like what we are doing as a movement. We're here to stop the climate crisis, create millions of good paying jobs in the process, to principles around who we welcome in our movement. We're a movement of people from all walks of life also have principles connecting to our structure. I know Aru touched on this a little, but we have a principle that's like, we take initiative. Any three people can join Sunrise and take action in the name of Sunrise. Trying to really sort of foster a culture of experimentation, of taking initiative, of like taking action. Um, Yeah. So as I hear that, of course, the org designer in me is like, how much of the sort of containers that you just described are created centrally and like pushed to the edges and how much like is expected to be created at the edges. Like if, if there is a hub that has different principles or a different way of structuring, like, like how, like what's the feedback loop between the, the middle and the edge? Wow. That's such a good question. Yes. Yeah. So basically the idea behind DNA is that it tends to be really hard to change the nature of a movement deliberately once it is already out there because there are so many people who already have this sense and it's it's just difficult to go out to everyone and be like, okay, we're going to change it in XYZ ways and you can't do it very often. Yeah. yeah. So the, the idea is that there is supposed to be a small amount of stuff and I, I think our first DNA packet was around 12 pages long, a small amount of stuff that is actually set that's like, okay, if you are joining this movement, mm-hmm. this is what you are signing up for. And then everything else is kind of like open and up for adaptation and debate. So in, in this case, we had the, the principles, which, you know, were, were set. And, but the hub structure was not really set. Um, similarly, for this 2.0 round of DNA, which we're, I know we're going to get into, we ended up taking a lot of feedback from our base and being like, okay, we mm-hmm. are going to devise draft hub structures now, but we're not going to force you to do them. They're more templates. And obviously there's there's a lot of pros and cons with either the option of creating something centrally and pushing it out or the option of having it evolve on the edges. But that's that's a little bit of how it's worked. It's in like dividing what we what is clear and what it needs to be unified across our whole movement and what continues to get adopted. But Deja that was- and I are both huge <laughs> structure nerds. We love structures. <laughs> it's great. And I guess, yeah, I'm I'm interested in in a related question, which is sitting inside that structure. And and we we obviously have a, a somewhat decentralized system as well. When when you have that far-flung thing going on, who makes decisions and how are decisions made? So as you think about decisions that you might make inside a hub or even about things like the brand or the message or the fundraising or how funds are spent. Can you talk a little bit about where and how those types of decisions might be made? Yeah. So originally in Sunrise, sort of the principle that most got to the culture and norms around decision-making were, were one of our principles. And I think this touches on the, the role of threes. <laughs> it's like any mm. group of three people can take action in the name of Sunrise. We ask for advice, not permission from each other to make this happen, to make decisions. We ask ourselves, does this bring us closer to our goal? If it does, we, we do it. We do the work that, that's exciting and makes sense. 
And as you may know, <laughs> like as you build a movement, as you build an organization, as you grow your hub, it's not enough <laughs> to have a norm sure. around decision-making. That's like any three people can make any decision. <laughs> and so we've, we've seen that like in hubs, for example, hubs have been like, actually, this is not enough guidance to figure out how we make decisions. There have been hubs who have actually built out a more formal decision-making process where they have certain decisions that are made by consensus, certain decisions that are made by core leadership or the core team within a hub. And another thing that we sort of noticed as Sunrise has really grown is that we have not had a structure to make decisions between our movement and our, our, our national organization and staff. And so often it's staff who has like made the decision to do big days of action or has made the decision to do things like set campaigns or set strategy. And that has often come with, you know, cost to our movement, not feeling like they have agency to like shape the direction of sunrise. Mm. And we'll, we'll maybe talk about this and getting to where we're headed. But one of the really big interventions that we're trying to make in sunrise is think about how do we make decisions together and like what structures, a decision-making structure, democratic structure, like helps us do that. Yeah. Let's hear about those. I'm super interested. So because because we've telegraphed it a couple of times, let's talk about Sunrise 2.0. There was a New Yorker article about what y'all are doing in terms of sort of revolutionizing your org. Um, what's what's new? What are you trying? We want to hear all, all the nerd stuff. <laughs> I think also some of the history around sort of why Sunrise yeah. needed to be re-front-loaded is that Sunrise, as we mentioned, was front-loaded four to five years ago. And that DNA or the strategy was like ending around the 2020 election. And so there was sort of this like moment or realization that it's like, we don't have a strategy given the political conditions of where we go as a movement mm -hmm. um, beyond 2022. And so part of the reason, you know, front loading, re-front loading happened was to, to figure out given the context, the political conditions, like where do we take our movement in the fight uh, to stop the climate crisis and win a Green New Deal? And then I think there was this other piece of, you know, there is a front-loading team, race, class, demographics look, look different. There are a lot of things that Sunrise did very, very well, but there were also some like deep structural challenges around, yeah, decision-making, around race and class, around culture that like needed to be deeply addressed. And so, yeah, the hope is that there is a front-loading process, a re-front-loading process that was going to really sort of get under the hood. Um, of Sunrise and tried to sort of re-envision what our new DNA could look like. And maybe I'll talk about some of the core interventions that we're making. And yeah, Aru, you can add, add anything, but I like to think of the DNA and sort of four big interventions that we're making. The first one being pivoting our strategy towards really supporting our movement to do local organizing around the Green New Deal there wasn't really a strategy or plan for how hubs engage and work around the Green New Deal in their communities and homes. It was often, you know, national acts to sit in your senator or congressperson's office mm -hmm. to engage in electoral work. But often hubs are like, we want to do things around the Green New Deal in our homes. How can we do that and help us? Didn't really know how to fully support that. Second intervention is around multiracial cross-class movement building. For Sunrise, there was, you know, the recognition recognition that it was not going to be enough to be a majority white, majority middle class, upper class movement. That yeah. was not going to build us the power that we needed to win Green New Deal legislation federally and across the country um, in cities and in towns. 
So that's the second intervention. Like we need to build the powerful multiracial cross-class youth movement that's going to win a Green New Deal. Third intervention is around internal democracy. How do we have stronger systems and structures in place to make decisions and to get very clear on who is making decisions on what and why? And then the fourth piece is just around like leadership development. Like we need to build a mass movement of young organizers who have the skill and the heart and like the drive to, to organize and build power through the coming, you know, years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how do we train and coach and provide programs for, for our, our movement to get the skills to do that? I think the one thing I'd add is I, I'd, I'd maybe just highlight is a couple of the things that, that stayed the same. And I say this because I think mm. it's very interesting from an org structure perspective is that we want to be able to pivot to local campaigning while also recognizing that the federal government is the entity that is most able to address the effects of the climate crisis at scale because of the amount of money that we have, et cetera. And because of that, we want to be basically keep our ability to focus on national campaigns when it's relevant, keep our ability to do escalated action where it makes sense, keep our ability to engage in elections. And I think a lot of those kick up a very interesting structural question and cultural question of how do you balance and how do you how do you enable the the decentralized moments and the unifying moments? Like when do we all come together? How do we all come together? When do we flow apart? In terms of the the process that you did design to tackle that, we're we're obviously professional org design nerds. So we're very curious about how you approached it and what your first moves were and and what ultimately led to to the outcomes that you wanted. Yeah, I can start with the general design of the front-loading process, and I'll let Deja talk more about how we designed the structure. Cool. I'll say it was when I walked into this, I was 22 years old, and I didn't know much about org structure at all or about very long strategic design processes. And I feel <laughs> like I learned a lot about how to design this process as we were doing it. So though we actually did it, it was like we built a team out of nominations. We did some ad hoc consultation. We built a plan and then we put the most energy around the pl- building a plan bit and then the getting feedback after we built a plan bit. And in retrospect, I'm like, that is probably not how I would, how I would do it before. I think there's actually something really powerful about creating a bounded space within which to brainstorm and then inviting many, many people from your movement into that brainstorm. And then from that, having a small core team of people be able to narrow down that brainstorm and make strategic choices around strategy, around structure, et cetera. And something, I think two things that I really have learned from how to design processes out of this is that I still really believe in the ability of small teams to make decisions, um, in our ability to get into conflict together, have the relationship to do that, have a lot of nuance. But I also really believe in the necessity of having large and open conversations for generating ideas. And I think the group mind is really powerful for that. And that's something I've really walked away with and which we had done a little bit more of, honestly. Yeah. And then I'm happy to narrow in on a a specific piece of designing where I feel like there was a lot of really good nuggets and and things that we learned. I was leading the structure team on the front loading process. And Mm -hmm. for us, there was this very big overwhelming question of like, what 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 was our structure specifically thinking about like our hub structure our structures to support our movement and like what worked very well and what are some of the challenges that were coming up that we like needed to problem solve for and so some of the process that we took in redesigning our hub structure was yeah assessing like 
what worked, why did it work? How do we keep those elements within the structure? And then what are some of the challenges? And we did, you know, workshops and one-on-ones with hubs across our movement, really like digging in to the challenges, understanding what experiments did you run to try to address, address these challenges, what worked, what didn't. And so it gave us a real profile on like the core challenges our hubs within that structure were facing. And a lot of it was around how do you recruit and retain members? There's like, <laughs> there's this thing in Sunrise where you either have an hour to give or 20 hours to give. And there's no structure that like allows a person with, you know, five hours to, to engage. Mm, and so interesting. Right. how do we structure, restructure hubs in a way that can engage yeah, people who have no time or, or little time or just only money to give? And so that was sort of the first process, really like understanding the challenges within the structure. From there, we started a design process where we were, you know, hosting workshops with our hub again, redesigning and saying, how do you think you would fix this problem? What choices would you make? What would you do differently? And then from there, we have sort of like a prototype or a draft structure and then allow people to, to, to dig into that structure, engage in the structure, give us more feedback. And then from there, we have like a final hub structure that then went into the ratification process. And so, yeah, a lot of it is like really trying to understand what are the problems that we want to solve with structure, using structure as a way to mitigate, mitigate and like manage some of the problems that were coming up in our previous structure. Mm-hmm. And then try to bring as many minds into the process of like redesigning that, that structure. Cool. <laughs> I have so many follow-up questions. But the first one is, <laughs> how did you ratify the new structure? Like, what's the process of ratification? Yeah, so the ratification process started with, I'm like, do I want to say it started with the info sessions? So there was a team in Sunrise that was essentially responsible for identifying sort of leaders within all of the hubs within our movement and sort of having, making sure that we're sort of tethered or have representation for hubs across our movement. And then over the course of, I think, like four to five months, we were hosting roundtables with those volunteer leaders. And this is a place where we could present the DNA with folks. And these were like four sessions, I think three hours in the evening for four weeks, where we were showing the DNA, the strategy, the structure, the culture, the story with volunteers, getting feedback, engaging in conversation about it. And then on the other side of that, there was sort of this team, the DNA edits team, that was like taking a lot of the feedback that was coming from the roundtables we also ran a process in the fall called content testing, where we like got feedback from our movement, got feedback from partners, got feedback from the public on some of the like draft thinking of our DNA. Yeah, so the DNA edits team then took a lot of that feedback, was discussing, debating, trying to make choices given some of the feedback that we were getting. And then eventually on the other side of that, we had DNA um, for Sunrise 2.0. And then there was a process that opened where folks could register to vote And then eventually vote on the DNA. And I think about a month, a month ago, Mm -hmm. time is really weird now. Our movement like (laughs) voted and ratified the DNA. And yeah, all of the DNA passed, which is great and exciting for us. And got a lot of really good comments and like input and feedback, especially on things like the democratic structure from our movement to give us some really good insight and information on like how to move forward. Yeah, given we ratified. I was just going to say, I'm looking at the data from from the ratification and it looks like 75% turnout on the registered participants mm-hmm. and the vast majority of the votes passed at like a 90% plus yes versus no rate the only one that seemed to be a little bit contentious was the special vote on dues that was 70 30 
but it seems like a pretty widely supported, I mean, as votes go, certainly compared to like, say, our national electorate, very, very well supported <laughs> votes on these on these items. Yeah, it was really exciting to see the see the votes come in. We set a pretty high threshold. We were like 50% is not going to cut it. We actually want, I think we said like two thirds need to yeah, two thirds yep. vote in order to pass. So it was really exciting to see these. And we, I think there was just a lot of a, a good amount of like, let's get moving. We want to start organizing energy. And so people were, were I think, excited to vote yes. And I mean, at these rates, you could have eradicated the filibuster. So <laughs> I feel really good about it. Yeah. And I feel like the moment that's going to be like ratification felt important. But to me, I'm like, the most exciting piece is going to be when we get to actually move into the DNA and organize under the DNA. And I think that's going to be the place where we really learn a lot. All right. So shifting gears a little bit from, from all that voting and, and consensus building, um, how do you hope the intention that you're bringing to Sunrise's internal structure and culture and way of working will actually translate into external impact? You have this internal set of designs. Now you're hoping it helps you drive outcomes. What's the connection between the two in your mind? I think one of the things I think about when when you say this is when we first launched Sunrise, we were very clear that the structure of our movement needed to have both unity and autonomy. And that is to say, people could do their own thing, adapt the DNA to their context, et cetera. But in key moments, we needed to be able to act together and use our force together in order to, to make change. And what we found, I think, through the first iteration of our structure was that if you only set people up to run with the DNA and you don't develop them as leaders, as organizers, you actually enable neither full autonomy nor full unity. Mm. And I think I think that's basically what we are at the, the, the high level of structure. I feel like in some ways that's what we're trying to intervene on. We're like, we want mm-hmm. to do the leadership development, the training, and the structures in internal democracy to develop people to be deep strategic leaders on the Green New Deal and on climate and on organizing and on how to win power everywhere. And once we develop people in that way, we are then also able to unite in key moments. So I actually think that interventions like democracy are really key for successful movements who are trying to be more than the sum of their parts, because it actually allows you to not just have hub here, hub there, hub here, but be like, we can make this more than, yeah, we can make this add up to more than what we have. That's really cool. It's a cool linkage between developmental and learning activities and network effect that I don't always think is made. Like I think a lot of network effect is about connectivity and communication, but it's not as much about like cultivating the capacity of the nodes in the network. Mm. So I think that's a really fun thing to investigate further. Um, We can't talk about org design forever, even though we want to. (laughs) Uh, Because I feel like we also have to talk about the climate crisis, probably. (laughs) So, you know, it seems bad. Uh, We've had record-breaking heat around the globe, wildfires, epic flooding. How would you describe the current climate, you two experts, and, uh, and and this moment? What is this moment that we're in? I think... I've been internalizing a lot of this over the past few months, but it it does feel pretty catastrophic. And I think at times, sometimes really hard to feel hopeful about the state of 
the future. Like we're still in a pandemic. There's a monkeypox outbreak. Democracy is hanging on by a very thin thread and like climate disaster after climate disaster are hitting places across the world and this country. But I think the thing that I keep thinking about in the midst of the like dread, honestly, about where this country is going to go in five or 10 or 50 years. And I know there's also the like inflation reduction act that has given me a little bit of glimmer of hope, but I think still <laughs> like the type of transformation this country is going to need to get us through a, a changing climate is just going to be, be like needing to build, you know, movement and power organization. But yeah, I think the thing that I've been thinking about so much in this moment where I'm just like looking at a government and looking at a, a world <laughs> and like, why are you acting on these issues? Yeah. Anyone can see that there's a problem. I think it's like doubling down now more than ever on the importance of like building an organization that has a strategy that gets people very excited to join and that they think can win and building movements that have cultures that like want to invite people in and make them stay. And so, yeah, I feel like the biggest thing in the moment of like despair that I feel even as a climate organizer is just like realizing still the power of how important it is in this moment of crisis and disaster to, to, to be providing a home and a space where people can sort of take some of that fear and anxiety and like translate it into the work that's going to be needed to get us out of this. It does, it does feel a little hopeless in the moment. And especially because we're such a bread and circus culture right now where, you know, everybody has time for stranger things season four, Mm -hmm. but we may not have time for doing something, you know, in terms of activism uh, on any of the fronts that matter right now. There's, there's more even than the ones you listed. So it's, it's, it's really, I think it's, it's a little bit hard, but it's nice to hear about growing movements in the midst of that. And I guess the question I'm wondering is at the risk of sounding a little bit naive, what are the greatest structural challenges impacting the climate movement right now? I think most people listening who don't spend every waking moment inside the climate issue have a little bit of a drumbeat of why can't we just do something? Like, why isn't there, Mm. why isn't it easier to get some collective action happening? And so I'm curious from your experience now on the ground and and in the political climate, what, it doesn't seem like we're in quite as much of a climate denial state as we were Mm -hmm. when Al Gore's documentary came out. Now Mm -hmm. it feels like we all sort of know it's happening, but we're not doing anything about it. What, what's your read on that? And and what ultimately, what, what dominoes need to fall in order for that to really shift? Wow, this is a great question. I think there are a couple things here. One is that it's something we all know, maybe we all know this, but the vast majority of Americans do support climate action at this point. And the Republican Party at all levels of government, but particularly in our federal government, is just deeply bought out by fossil fuel and oil executives in a way that is stalling climate progress. And obviously, I will just say that fossil fuel executives donate to both parties in really major ways, but they definitely have a much larger hold on the Republican Party and have actually made very specific efforts. One was in, oh, I'm going to forget the year that this was done, but there was this whole thing called the Climate Tax Pledge, where I think hundreds and hundreds of local officials and Congress people signed this thing put out by the Koch brothers saying that they would vote no on any legislation that increased taxes <laughs> on any way oh for God. climate change. And it was a pledge that they took. Perfect. Funded by by like oil money, basically. And just and maybe this is obvious to people. People are like, I know our government has been bought out, but I, I think it's sometimes helpful to be like, yes, let us keep pointing to the people who have actually very deliberately stalled climate action because it cuts into their profits. So that's, I feel like, 
number one. Can I jump in on number one? Because I actually think this one's really interesting and important. And as I look at different issues, whether it be the climate crisis, whether it be gun control, whatever it is, often what we hear is that the other side of the argument is well-funded and well-invested in the political situation. Mm -hmm. Are there not freaking billionaires who believe in climate change who are like, I can throw money? Like, Why isn't Bloomberg throwing everything he's got at this issue so that those people don't get to fucking win? That's a good question. And I'll say there, there are some billionaires that are sympathetic to climate change. I think something that's interesting here, and I read an article on this like two years ago, is that the billionaires who tend to hit the public eye tend to be a lot more progressive and left leaning than Mm. billionaires who don't. And there's and it's mostly like a public perception thing of if you are in the public eye, you and like saying things like I don't believe the rest of the people should have money or, you know, right. then you're less likely to be popular. So that's, I think we have a skewed perception sometimes of billionaires and a lot of the people we, we think of are, are, are like a relative minority. Mm. And I do think there is something to the fact that actually the extreme wealth inequality that we are seeing and climate change are really deeply tied together. Right. And that in order to address climate change, we are going to dramatically need to re- redistribute a lot, like a lot of the way that wealth flows in this country so that a small minority of, of people like the, don't, don't control most of the resources in, in this country and in the world. Yeah. So we're not uh, living yeah. in an oligarchy. That'd yeah. Cool. <laughs> Got it. That seems important. That yeah, it's so interesting. It's like, you know, climate change and, and gun control, since you mentioned it, Aaron, it is always fascinating to me to see a party come out strongly against those things. Cause I'm like, Yo, we're all gonna have to live here. Like when there's just like mm-hmm. micro civil war and like the earth is too hot to live on, like billionaires are fucked too. I mean, I know, yeah. I know their narrative is that they're not because they'll like colonize a planet or live underground in a bunker or whatever. But um, but it is wild to me that there is such a large population of people who will come out strong against the earth existing as a platform. <laughs> I'm like, huh. That's an amazing thing to talk yourself into over decades. Yeah. Well, and I don't know if y'all have read Douglas Rushkoff's new book, but he's he's a friend of ours and, and a guest on the show. And it's it's really about his experience being called into these private enclaves with maybe six billionaires yeah. around the table and them yeah. asking him questions. And the questions they asked him were a lot more about like, how do we control our paid militia mm. in our bunker than how can we fix what we have screwed up? Mm. Um, so, so there was like a real aha moment for him. Like, oh, they're not gonna save us. Like they're already looking for where to hide. We're going to have to do this through organizing. And that's why I think things like Sunrise Movement are so exciting. Yeah. And I think the last, something, something that I'll also say on that around the billionaires is like, yeah, we aren't at the point where we have, you know, billionaires ready to, to buy out politicians to pass, you know, a Green New Deal. But I think that's where I'm like, we need organized people. And I think another thing that I've been reflecting on is like social movements need to get better at figuring out. I feel like there are so many currents that prevent people from like getting involved, taking action. There's things around mental health. There's like individual individualism in the society. The idea of like your community and being embedded in your community just like doesn't exist, you know, in the way that it maybe did. Yeah. In, in, in society. And so I feel like another question that I've been thinking about a lot is the public supports climate legislation, but most of the public is not taking action on it. How mm-hmm. do we build movements that are like 
bringing people in, everyday people who are not thinking day to day about the Green New Deal, about the climate crisis. And I feel like that's something that, yeah, Sunrise and like many movements organizations are going to have to grapple with. Like it is not enough to be, you know, a small group of people (laughs) who care deeply about the climate. Like we need to build a movement that is welcoming as many people into the process to like, yeah, get us towards a society that is mitigating and adapting and passing legislation to like, yeah, stop the climate crisis. That seems very sensible and and helpful. And I'll also just put out the open call. If there are any billionaires listening, I'm sure there's at least one. (laughs) The correct move here is that you say out loud, whatever the NRA will give you, I'll give you double. Whatever the (laughs) fossil fuel people will give you, I'll give you double. And then you just take over one piece at a time. Just just a thought, just a note. (laughs) So we've talked a lot about the many large and gnarly hills to still be climbed. But when you look back, what are you most proud of so far in terms of Sunrise's wins? Like what are you, what do you really hold up as being, being the successes that you want to build on from here? There are so many. I was just trying to think through what I, what I most want to hold up. I think for me, I really believe that Sunrise did a, a a really good job of putting climate front and center in national politics, especially during the 2020 presidential or 2019 and 2020 presidential primaries and presidential debates and uh, an election. And I think that set the stage for the moment that we are in right now, where people in Congress, like Democrats in Congress are trying so hard to actually fight for climate legislation. And that would have been unthinkable without social movements like Sunrise and like the climate strikes and many others. And I'm, I'm particularly thinking of the Inflation Reduction Act, which reduces our emissions to by 40% by 2030. And it's obvious, it's like not perfect by any means. And I'm very much reminded of how much further we need to, we need to go. And I am, I feel proud of the work that Sunrise and other movements did to, to get us to that point. Yeah. And another thread, this is more, more cultural, but I think when I joined, before I joined Sunrise, I felt incredibly powerless. I did not feel like I could change the government. I did not feel like there was dramatic things that I could do to transform my community. And when I joined Sunrise, it was the first time that I actually felt powerful as a young person in the country. And to see young people calling their senators, sitting in their senators or congressperson's office was just mind blowing to me to think that I could demand more of society, demand more of my government, demand more of my elected officials. And to me, I think that's one of the most powerful things Sunrise has done is like plant the seed in so many young people that we can demand more. And like the vision of the Green New Deal, how <laughs> trans- like transformative it feels and where I think society could be taken if we actually really embody <laughs> and pass legislation that gets us there is, is powerful. Yeah, so for me, I feel like it's been like, the personal transformation within people who join the movement who like feel agency and feel powerful for once in their lives. I think that is going to be the thing that helps us do the work and do the organizing in the long term. Yeah. To get us out of this climate crisis. That's awesome. I think planting seeds is always a good place to draw things to a close on this show. So uh, Aru and Deja, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work with Sunrise? You can just go to our website, sunrisemovement.org, and there's stuff on there about how to take action, how to join a hub, anything else that y'all are interested in. And that's that's the best place to find out more about us or follow us on any of our social media accounts. 
Twitter, Instagram, etc. There's a lot of ways. There might be a hub near you. There are hubs in many, many cities around the country. Amazing. Thank you both so much for coming on the show today. We really enjoyed having you. Yeah, thanks, Erin. Thanks, Rodney. And for our listeners, if you like what you're hearing, a review would mean so much to us or forward this show to someone who needs it, maybe a billionaire with a progressive (laughs) mindset who wants to live on this planet with us. That would be terrific. Fantastic. As always, a tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making the four of us sound good today. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. You can get in touch with us, as always, by emailing podcast at theready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something.